We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Peter and the 5th chapter. The book of 1 Peter and the 5th chapter. And I'll be reading and preaching with God's help this morning on verses 12 through 14. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. I encourage you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Here Peter writes, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace today. We thank you for bringing us together in your kind providence to worship you as your people in spirit and in truth. And we would ask now for the work of the powerful Holy Spirit that he would sovereignly move among us that he would open our ears and our eyes to behold the wondrous things of your word, that he would grant us an understanding of the material that we're going to consider today, and not just an understanding of it conceptually, but the ability to apply it to our own lives in such a way that our behavior is Christ-like, and our speech and our conduct is such that brings honor and glory to you. So bless us now. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Brethren, this morning we come to the end of our series in this very practical epistle of 1 Peter. And I trust that in God's providence, this series has been exactly what you've needed at this time. In fact, I know that it has been for me. In fact, this past week, in reflecting upon what we've covered and the messages that I've had the privilege of delivering in your presence, I have noted again and again the kindness of God and the things that he's brought forth through his word to remind us of, things that we've needed to hear again, things that we've easily forgotten. There have been many things in this epistle, this epistle that have gripped my heart as I've prepared, and I trust that they've gripped your heart as you've heard them. I trust that you will not easily and quickly forget the lessons learned in this wonderful epistle. I have marveled at how relevant and applicable Peter's words have been to my own needs and to my own struggles as a Christian and even as a pastor. In fact, I have to be honest with you this morning. The section on humility as I studied humility in leaders and humility as a cloak that all Christians should wear, slayed me in an unusual way because God powerfully intervened in my own thinking and in my own studies to make it vividly clear. And I pray that God has made things vividly clear to you through this series as well. I believe God has been faithful to feed us through this epistle. 
And I pray that what we have heard will not return void, but rather it has and continues to make a difference in our lives as those who desire to live under the authority of God's word. Amen? To live under the authority of God's word and the leadership of his spirit. And so if we have listened with obedient hearts, if we have received the word of God with humble and teachable spirits, then Peter has taught us a great deal about grace, and he's taught us a great deal about suffering. He's taught us a great deal about the need for humility and other biblical themes. And Peter's parting words here in verses 12 through 14 are no exception. In fact, these last three verses are like a biblical honeycomb. And you just grab it and squeeze it. And the honey comes forth. Even in these words, we can see how God instructs us. For as we come to these parting words, Peter does five things to demonstrate that he himself took the word of God to heart. So in other words, we're going to see some examples here in what Peter says of how he applied these truths in his own life. And they're reflected in the re- in the the remaining departing comments that he makes here at the end of the book. What does Peter stress here first in these parting words? Well, first of all, I want you to notice, I want me to notice this morning, that Peter recognizes the value and the contributions of another believer in Jesus Christ. Peter recognizes the value and the contributions of another believer in Jesus Christ. We see this here in the beginning of verse 12. And that believer being Silvanus or Silas as he's identified in other places in the New Testament. And Peter praises him as one who Peter regarded or I think maybe even a better word would be esteemed, highly esteemed as one that Peter highly esteemed as a faithful brother. Not just a faithful acquaintance. Not just someone who claimed to be a God-fearer, but a faithful brother. And of course, Peter's recognition of a faithful brother does not surprise us because Peter stressed the existence of a Christian brotherhood back in verse 9 of this same chapter. And he stressed there in that verse that we are to find strength from our brothers. We are to find strength and vitality from the Christian brotherhood, knowing that they are suffering and enduring the same kinds of trials and afflictions that we are. And yet even in the midst of those trials and afflictions, They demonstrate their love towards us. And the fact that we have faithful brethren who minister to us in times of difficulty, even when they are suffering, is a great token of God's mercy. It is a great encouragement in God's providential dealings with us. And if we take to heart the goodness of Almighty God in giving us faithful brethren We will not take our brethren, we will not take our faithful brother for granted. 
we will not take our faithful brother for granted. And we will not neglect to recognize what they contribute to the cause of Christ and to our own lives as people who need other believers. And let's admit this morning that we all profoundly need the encouragement and influence that we receive from other people, from other believers, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter not only mentions here his regard, his high esteem for Silvanus as a brother, but he reveals how he is also indebted to him, for it was through this brother that Peter had written to these readers. So we don't know the exact relationship with them, but it seems very possible that he was Peter's scribe, that he was the one who recorded the things that Peter said or helped to assemble and to organize the things that Peter wrote under God's inspiration. It was because of his assistance that Peter was able to fulfill his ministry. And brethren, it is because of the assistance, the kind assistance of other, that you and I are able to fulfill our ministry. Don't think for a moment that you live the Christian life on your own. Don't think for a moment that you're the cause of your own success. Don't let things go to your head. No, if you have any success, it's because of the people that God has placed in your path. It's because of your faithful brethren. In fact, I, I wonder this morning how well you and I are connected to how well you and I are supportive of the brotherhood that God has surrounded us with. Those of you who are close to me know that I love the book of Pilgrim's Progress. And one thing I love about the book, other than its clear biblical worldview, is the fact that it illustrates again and again how God brought onto the path of Christian other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ to take him just a little bit further down the path. In fact, as you read the book, you get the sense that Christian might just quit at some point when one dear brother leaves. He's in a quandary and he wonders what he's going to do and he might be tempted to withdraw or to draw back or to quit altogether. And in the kind providence of God, here comes another faithful brother, another faithful individual to take Christian just another step further down the line. And that's true in your life and my life. We may not see things in that way. We may not understand things from that perspective, but that's exactly what's happening. God is inserting brothers, sisters into our lives for the purpose that we might be encouraged, for the purpose that we might be assisted, for the purpose that we might assist them. How often do we express to these brothers and sisters how much we value them? How often do we thank them for the contributions that they make to the cause of Christ and to our own lives? I sense that we don't value enough the people that God providentially places in our lives. We do tend to take them for granted. We do, to, do tend to assume that they'll simply be there as they've always been there. 
and that we can always rely and depend upon them. But God could take them away in a day. God could replace them easily. When we have them, we should value them. We should uh, treasure the precious gift of, of Christian brothers and sisters that God providentially brings in our lives in good times and in difficult times. And I I think the more mature that we become, the more we also recognize the importance of being the kind of brother or sister that others can depend on. I've been stressing the brothers and sisters that God give us as a blessing. What about you and I as a blessing to them? How often do we reflect upon that? For if we're not loving the brotherhood as ourselves, if we are not serving them as they are called to serve us, then we are adding to others' burdens rather than being used to remove them. And so first of all, in these parting words of this epistle, Peter stresses indirectly, yes, but quite powerfully, how a grateful and humble spirit leads us to value and appreciate our own brethren, our own brethren especially. For a faithful brother, a faithful sister, is God's gift. God's gift. And I want you to know as your pastor this morning, I thank God for you as his gift to me. And I pray every day that I can be his gift to you and encourage you. And God help me to value you and to recognize you and your contributions. And may that go throughout this room between all of us. For the brotherhood is a special family of God. And we need to acknowledge and love and support one another. Then secondly, in using these parting words wisely. Peter passionately reiterates the main message of this entire epistle. He passionately reiterates the main message of this entire epistle, and that being that we are the recipients of God's manifold grace from the beginning of our Christian lives to the end of our Christian lives we are the recipients of grace. We're not the producers of grace. We're the recipients of grace. From the grace, the saving grace that we receive at regeneration to the sustaining grace that we receive throughout our sanctification, all is by grace. The Christian life is a journey in grace. We live it in grace. To grow in grace, we must hold fast. We must stand firm in it. For Peter writes, continuing here in verse 12, notice this, that throughout the course of this letter, he had exhorted. Exhortation is something that you do from the heart. And he had declared, this was something that he had done with his full reasoning power. He had exhorted and he had declared this is the true grace of God. Now stand firm in it. Why does Peter emphasize this again at the end of the letter? I'll tell you why. Because the threats that we face and the temptations that we encounter 
to set aside God's grace, to set aside God's free grace, and to rely upon ourselves are constant. We must not submit to these trials. We must not submit to these temptations. Furthermore, just as there are counterfeit gospels, there are counterfeit views on how grace operates in our lives. In fact, I would submit to you that many Christians don't understand fully how grace operates in their lives. Many would try to convince us that grace is compatible in some way and to some extent with human effort. That grace and human effort mix together in some way. And that we must cooperate to receive grace. You understand that we cannot cooperate to receive grace. Grace is the free gift of God. But Peter's parting words are intended here to settle this debate forever. Notice his wording. There is a true grace of God. A true grace of God. It is bestowed sovereignly by God alone. That's the message throughout this epistle. It is bestowed freely according to God's own eternal sovereign purposes. He's the one who's in control. He's the one who dispenses it. He's the one who ensures that we have it. He's the one who makes sure that it's sufficient. It is to be taught by us. The true grace of God is to believe, to be believed and taught by us without compromise and without any modifications. In fact, Peter commands us here. Notice the command. Stand firm in it. Stand firm. And by this, Peter is not stating that we place ourselves in this state and that we keep ourselves in this state for God's work of justification in this life is what places us and keeps us in a state of grace. But our enjoyment of the blessings of being in this state is very much influenced. It is very much affected by our determination to stand firm in what God has revealed. To stand firm in what God has revealed. To not move out of it in a sense. To not forfeit our joy to lies about the nature of grace. And so, secondly, Peter stresses in parting our need to be right and firm about true grace. And I ask you this morning, are you right about grace? There's not a topic that is more important to be right about than grace. And are you also standing firm in that grace by the grace of God? Are you doing everything that you can to remind yourselves by frequent study of Scripture of how grace does operate in your life and how that grace is powerful, how that grace does change you and transform you, and how that grace is sufficient for you. Then thirdly, in demonstrating that he took God's word seriously and its authority over God's people seriously, the Apostle Peter relays some important greetings here. He relays some important greetings here. Greetings that point to the need for love between true churches, between true churches, and for love between true 
brethren. Notice this interesting phrase that Peter makes or writes here in verse 13. He says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so Mark, my son, does as well. We could translate it that way. Who is being referred to here by these titles and these individual names? Well, at first glance, it might seem that he's talking, Peter is talking about a female who's in Babylon. But in reality, most scholars interpret this reference to Babylon here in verse 13 as the church of God, those meeting in Babylon as the church of God in the city of Rome. The church of God in the city of Rome. Those in the church at Rome, Peter is saying, send you greetings. For it appears that Peter was ministering in the city of Rome, although we don't know the exact details of that. And it was Peter's desire, and no doubt the desires of the saints in the church at Rome, that the readers of Peter's epistle know of them, know of them, and receive their greeting for not only has God designed for his kingdom to consist of individual brothers and sisters who know and truly appreciate one another and their contributions but God has also designed his kingdom so that churches true churches are to know and to appreciate one another whether those churches are in Babylon or Rome or those churches are in Macedonia, for example. And here, by expressing this formal greeting from one church in Babylon, the church in Rome, to many potential churches within Peter's readership. Think about how many people are receiving Peter's epistle, how many congregations could be receiving this epistle, this epistle and being told in this epistle from Peter to receive the greeting from the church at Rome. Peter is demonstrating the kind of concern and charity that should exist between all true Christian churches. This is something that we don't emphasize a lot, but it needs to be mentioned often. There should be warm, cordial, friendly, loving, supportive relationships between two true churches of Jesus Christ. It is not God's will that just individual Christians live and function together, but it is God's will that individual churches function and cooperate and exist together as churches of like-minded faith. Or, to put it another way, it is not God's will that individual churches should function alone or in isolation from other churches of like faith and practice, but rather true churches are to know and to pray for one another. True churches are to be concerned about one another, to seek one another's help as much as possible to alleviate hardships and to promote gospel labors. There are many ways that churches do this, but one way that churches can do this on many different levels or on levels that touch their relationship at different points is through assisting other churches in planting 
new churches, assisting other churches in planting new churches. For few things will develop a love and an appreciation between churches like seeing God raise up new churches in response to the collective labors of churches together. For in church planting, all churches benefit. We all benefit. This is why, by the way, brethren, that we as a congregation approved as a part of our budget this year a a certain amount of money to be given to the new church plant effort in Belton, Texas. And although we are a small church ourselves and we're not entirely self-supporting, we are commanded to take an interest in what God is doing among our sister churches and within the church plants. And I'll be talking more about this next week, about some ways that we want to do this and do this more. I'll be making some comments as well about the church in in Belton, Texas. And I'm, I'm pleased to announce this morning that in having some conversations this past week, it's very possible that God has identified a church planter for them this week. What a joy that is for them, but what a joy that is for us. Because as a like-minded church that's been giving sacrificially, and we have been giving sacrificially, we have a part in that. And that's a good thing. Then in addition to promoting love between sister churches by sending greetings between them, Peter also sends greetings from Mark. Notice that, from Mark, who he considered a son in the faith, as Paul had considered Timothy to be a son in the faith. And many commentators believe that Peter passed on this greeting from Mark so that the churches at large within Peter's audience, remember Peter's audience could be quite large, there could be many congregations, so that these congregations would know who Mark was, a chosen servant of God, a a called minister of God, that they would learn to recognize the men behind the scenes who had labored on their behalf. Peter is in essence saying, hey, I also want you to know that there's somebody else behind me named Mark, who, by the way, wrote one of the four Gospels, we believe. A man behind me who labors with me, who sends greetings to you as well. Why? Because he's been praying for you. Why? Because he takes an interest, not just in individual Christians, but in the growth of all the churches and the relationship that exists between all of God's people The churches should recognize and welcome greetings from individual gospel laborers as well as from churches. Then fourthly, in these parting words of this epistle, Peter reminds his readers here in the first part of verse 14 of their duty to show genuine love and affection towards one another. Their duty to show genuine love and affection toward one another. And he does this in a really remarkable statement. It's very hands-on, so to speak. It's very, it's very practical in terms of how they can demonstrate it. He writes, greet one another with the kiss of love. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, what was this kiss of love? Well, in this context, this form of greeting was a specific cultural greeting. For Peter ministered at a particular time in history and within a given culture that had its own unique practices. And 
Bible commentators and scholars do a considerable amount of debating to try to describe exactly what this kiss of love was, how it was administered, how it was received, what the significance of it was. But I think we could all agree that it was clearly a sign of Christian affection. A sign of Christian affection, for as Christian brethren greeted one another, from the moment that they greeted one another, there was to be some kind of evidence that they shared in the love of Christ and that they loved one another just as Christ commanded us to do. And I would ask us, is there something distinct about the way that we greet one another that is different from the way that we greet someone in general, the kind of greeting that we would have when we meet a, a brother at the workplace who's not a believer. What's unique about your greeting? What's unique about our greeting that conveys and communicates genuine Christian affection? Maybe it's additional words that we add. Maybe it's an expression, a facial expression. Whatever it might be, I'll leave that to your own conscience and your own study of the Word of God. But there needs to be a show and a sign of, of, of affection. You say, well, Pastor Massey, I don't know if I'm capable of that. I'm, I'm not a very affectionate person. How can I be showing affection all the time? It's hard enough for me to show affection to my wife. Well, that should not be the case. That certainly should not be the case when it comes to your Christian brethren as well. All of us are capable of showing genuine Christian affection to the brethren. In fact, we could say that we have all been prepared. We have all been equipped by the Holy Spirit to do this very thing. And the proof is that it, by regenerating us by His Spirit, God gave us the capacity to show genuine love for one another. In a very real sense, by removing that stony, hard heart, He's removed the obstacles that may have prevented, that certainly prevented men from showing genuine affection. In fact, Peter wrote back in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 that our hearts have been purified by obedience to the truth. For what purpose? For sincere brotherly love. You follow what he's saying? It's been purified. The obstacles have been removed so that we might obey and obey specifically in the expression of sincere brotherly love. Note the word sincere. Yes, Peter says, it is possible to show sincere brotherly love. Not love that's hindered in any way by hypocrisy or impurity, impure motives or thought, but, but sincere love as given by the Holy Spirit for what was once impossible due to the hardness and the rebelliousness of our own hearts and that being able to sincerely love anything other than ourselves is not only now possible but it is the clear outcome when we walk in the power of the Spirit. So the Spirit has prepared us and equipped us for this. How are we to love Again, Peter has been talking about this. Well, we are to love 
by doing more than merely following a human custom of greeting. We can follow a human custom of greeting and not show sincere love. But rather, Peter urges the intensity of our care and our commitment to ones that we are called to love. Love is a commitment. Loving our brethren is a commitment that we make, that we fulfill regardless of the obstacles. In fact, it's a commitment that is expressed with earnestness. It is a commitment that is concerned for the spiritual good and not the exploitation of the one we are professing to be genuinely concerned about. In fact, again, just to support this with Scripture, Peter wrote back in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, Above all, above all, love one another earnestly. Earnestly, he says, since love covers a multitude of sins. If you listen carefully to what Peter is saying, there's so much that's important being stated here. Peter is saying love, brotherly love, is a spiritual covering. It's a spiritual covering. It is something that comforts and brings warmth. It is something that protects against the elements. It is something that edifies and builds up. It is not something that tears down. It is not something that leaves spiritual wounds. There's a lot of things, even in the church today, that claim to be loving that leave wounds. I've met people with those wounds. You have too. All under the guise of love. But true, sincere, earnest, brotherly love doesn't leave wounds doesn't leave wounds. It heals. It brings life. It brings vitality. For everything that promotes the glory of God and the ultimate good of others comes down, practically speaking, in the church to how we love. How we love, how we demonstrate our spiritual affection for one another. And, and believe it or not, this often begins with how we greet one another. I find this fascinating. You think about greeting one another, that's the very beginning of the interaction, right? That's the very beginning of the relationship. And love often begins there. This is why we find these instructions from Peter here at the end of this letter again, because we can't learn to greet one another with affection unless we are willing to demonstrate love. Not only that, we must first learn to greet one another before we can receive one another and even accept one another. And so fourthly, Peter parts with his audience by appealing to their affections. Notice Peter's appealing to the whole man here, isn't he? To their minds, to what is true logically, reasonably, but he's also appealing to their hearts and he's appealing to their affections, their, their motivations. Then fifthly and lastly, Peter wisely and compassionately ends his epistle and rests his case with two glorious truths. And these are both mentioned here at the end of verse 14, 14b. The first truth is that there is peace for the people of God. There is peace for the people of God. For throughout this entire epistle, 
Peter has argued that real peace is possible in the midst of the storm. It is possible to know peace even when the foundations seem to be breaking up all around us. And there are times when the foundations do seem to be breaking up, aren't there? But there's peace even in that situation. Yes, it's possible to be at genuine peace when others revile you and mistreat you and say all manner of things falsely against you. It's possible to stay blissfully at peace even when the trials or the burdens that we face are far more intense and persist far longer than we ever expected. And why is this? Here's why. Because our peace as God's people has nothing to do with our trials and circumstances. Nothing to do with them. Rather, it has everything to do with the one who indwells us. The one who indwells us. The God of peace who is with us in the person of the Holy Spirit and who grants us comfort rooted in God's word. And if we have the spirit operating in us, if we are walking in the spirit who produces spiritual fruit of which spiritual peace is an essential part, we will have the ability to abide in peace. To abide in peace. To excel in peace. Oh, our peace may wane at times, but it will always remain. Our peace might seem at times to be faint, but it will never be extinguished. In fact, Brother Allen brought this out in his message last Sunday when he dealt with verse 10 of this chapter and he stressed that all the works that we need to prosper and to persevere in grace, God performs himself. God commands it, yes, but then God performs what he commands within us. And what God pledges to us here in verse 4b that we will have peace, he likewise performs for us as well. For God will not allow his people to wallow without peace. He will not allow us to wallow without peace. For the honor of his own name is at stake. The honor of his own name is at stake. He will now allow only those events that transpire in our lives that Develop the spiritual graces that we need. He will not allow events that hinder the spiritual welfare and the joy of his people, but he will be the source of peace for his beloved bride. Then the second truth that Peter stresses here in parting is the truth that everything that we have considered together in this wonderful letter, every theological truth clearly presented, every assurance clearly communicated, every promise and pledge that has been made finds its source and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We sang about this just a few moments ago, in Christ alone. That's the source. Thus, it is only appropriate that the final parting words of Peter here are the words, in Christ. In Christ. For these are the final notes of Peter's the Spirit's spiritual symphony. And I submit to you this morning that this epistle is a spiritual symphony. 
played by the Holy Spirit of God. Beautiful music, beautiful notes. And we have the pleasure of hearing it and enjoying it and being assured by it. And if we are in Christ spiritually and positionally, there's nothing that has been promised or pledged in this book that shall be denied to us. This book is ours as sons, as sons. And if it belongs to us, let us not cower in the face of adversity, but let us stand up tall. Let us stand firm in grace, in grace. In fact, Paul said the same thing to Timothy, be strong in the grace, Timothy, that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet what is the significance of these final notes if we are not in Christ? What if we are here today and outside of Jesus Christ? If we are not in Christ, then Peter's statement here in verse 14b, that peace comes to those who are in Christ, means absolutely nothing to us. They, they cannot be applied to us. They exclude us from all good that comes through Christ. In fact, the extent of a believer's of an unbeliever's exclusion is far greater than may first appear. For to be outside of Christ, to have one's trust and confidence in anything other than Jesus Christ is to be excluded across the board. It is to be cut off from the blessings that Peter identified with Christ throughout this letter. To be outside of Christ is to be left without any sure and powerful means of a life that pleases God and a life that has any meaning, true spiritual meaning whatsoever. Whereas to be in Christ in all the ways that Peter has presented and explained in this epistle is to be connected to Christ. It is to be joined to Christ. It is to be in union saving union with Jesus Christ who is the true source of all that is spiritually good the true source of all that is worth living for and therefore our prayer as we conclude our study of this wonderful letter this wonderful epistle of Peter is that all who have yet to come to Christ would be given eyes to see the grace of God at work In fact, yesterday we had a men's meeting. And I believe in some of the conversation that transpired between our men, the grace of God was powerfully at work. In fact, I winked at a couple of our brothers during the course of that meeting and we smiled. We said, God is at work. It's a beautiful thing to see the grace of God at work. If you're lost today, may God give you eyes to see the grace of God working. That you would see how Jesus Christ is at the very center of God's saving purposes. And yet he is so close that he will receive even the lowliest sinners like you and like me. May God create that faith in each of us. If he has not done so already. That not merely admires Jesus Christ but loves Jesus Christ not merely admires Christ but loves Christ there are many today as you converse with them 
who would say that they admire Christ. But do they love Christ? Peter makes it clear in this epistle that if we've been saved, if we've been born again from above, if we have the Spirit of God working within us, then we love Jesus Christ even though we have not yet seen him. Is that the case with you? I trust that it is. But we don't have to see Christ with our eyes, our physical eyes, to know he's at work. We know it in our spirits and in our hearts. And we see it manifested in what he's doing, even in our day, through his word, in his church, and in the lives of people who are committed to him. May God continue to encourage us and bless us in the days ahead. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this epistle that we've had the great privilege to study over these months. And we would ask, dear Lord, that you would echo in our hearts and minds the things that we've heard that we would not quickly lose them, but that we would capture them by your grace and strength and apply them in our own hearts today. Father, you have fed us bountifully. Our stomachs are overflowing with good provision. Our spirits are encouraged, and we are motivated to do your labor and we would pray that you would continue to use what we have heard to keep us moving forward as a church and as individuals, doing those things that you've called us to do, and above all, standing firm in grace. For the believer, there's no other way to stand but in grace. Help us to do that today and every day. For the glory of God. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.